So I am actually in Fargo, North Dakota. Kind of an aborted trip. Um, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, almost 25 years ago now, a friend of mine who was living here witnessed a, a, a brutal street shooting, um, more of an assassination, execution really, right out in the middle of a, a, a populated street in Fargo. One man walked up to another and just shot him four times. Actually turned the gun on her when he saw that she had witnessed it but did not pull the trigger. Uh, this man's name was Ronald Mostert. He was arrested um, shortly after my friend went to the police to tell what she saw. And here, here came the police sketch artist. So she began to describe what this man looked like who pulled the trigger. And in particular, uh, a point of emphasis was his eyes. And as the sketch artist did his thing, she kept urging him to draw the eyes bigger and deeper, bigger and deeper. And the, she recalled that the sketch artist was actually saying, are, are you sure? Are you sure about this? And she kept insisting, no, you've got to make the eyes bigger and deeper until finally what was produced was this truly ghastly, surreal police sketch but apparently it did the job because when this got out on the wires, uh, someone, uh, the, the Montana State Police uh, detective realized immediately who this was and knew, knew who to find. And that led them to Ronald Mostert. Ronald Mostert had a long history of, uh, of crimes, uh, of increasing violence. Uh, there was some sort of petty business betrayal and he killed a man in cold blood on the street. So, uh, several months ago, my friend became aware that Ronald Mostert was finally up for parole. And she asked me as a favor if I could attend the parole hearing with her. Now, I'm not, I was not to be allowed inside because only victims and victims next of kin are allowed inside a parole hearing. But she was granted a dispensation because Mostert was also charged when he turned the gun ever so briefly toward her and then escaped down the sidewalk. So she was considered for the purposes of the parole hearing to be a victim. And the reason she wanted to come to this was because for 22 years, she has been occasionally haunted by dreams of his face. And when I saw this man, in the newspapers, I, I realized why, because her description to the police sketch artist was accurate. His eyes were, were so sunk deep in his sockets, so hollow and so, so dark. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was captured quite well in the sketch. But she wanted to go to the parole hearing just for closure. She didn't intend to say anything. So I agreed to come to Fargo just to wait and uh you know when she left the courtroom i was just going to be there and so she was hoping that by just seeing this man again after 22 years after the trial maybe the dreams would go away here's what happened uh, three days ago we received word that ronald mustard had murdered his cellmate there was no pool here and thus you know, no no closure for my friend that was it, that was the end. So we, we wound up in Fargo, um, 
and I, I drove her back to the airport and it's been the last thing she said to me before she got on board the plane. She wondered aloud, what happens to police sketches when they're done with them? And it's a question that I, I didn't have an answer for. Just you telling that story, I mean, um, I get this pop-up in my mind of, oh, you know, just a, a generalized kind of uh, composite artist sketch. Um, I, I've i often tried to figure out why um, composite images are so hair-raisingly creepy-looking. <laughs> you know, I started... Uh, Looking into, have you heard of the the term the uncanny valley? No. It's been um, kind of bandied about more and more as computer-generated effects get more and more sophisticated and more popular as the field of robotics gets, you know, closer and closer to uh, humanoid uh, machines. It, if you you see something resembling a human resembling something that you can relate to or connect to, but but it's not quite there. It's not quite right. Like, it's almost there. But because it falls short somehow, there's something about it that sets off your alarms. This phrase, the uncanny, uncanny valley, was coined by... Um, there was a robotics professor at the Tokyo Institute of Technology, and he, he wrote an essay in 1970. In 1970, there was a world exposition in Osaka with all sorts of um, uh, robotics projects in various stages of uh, sophistication. And one, one, of, one of them that he describes um, reacting to is uh, one that I think it was something like um, they were really working on getting facial muscle movements to be as accurate as possible and there was uh, one robot who had like 20 like 29 um, semblances of facial uh, facial muscles and you know he, uh, he cites this um, phrase from the designer I think it was like a smile is a dynamic sequence of facial deformations and the speed of the deformations is crucial he says you know if if you take this this motion this motion to smile and you cut the speed in half suddenly it becomes a whole different ball game and it becomes very creepy right in particular, this is an editor's note to the essay. He hypothesized that a person's response to a human-like robot would abruptly shift from empathy to revulsion as it approached, but failed to attain a lifelike appearance. This descent into eeriness is known as the uncanny valley. right? So it's like this moment where there's a building where you're seeing, um, oh, I don't know, let's say a, 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 a drawing of a face, and you're kind of relating to it up to a point, but then when you, when, when you realize its artificiality, you kind of plummet to this point of fear, which actually, you know, probably um, is 
linked to just our natural self-preservation. Anyway, it's a, you know, I, I could go on about this forever, but I, I think that that effect is what's going on with our reactions to these drawings. Because, I mean, we're, of course, we're looking at this drawing. We know it's not exact. Um, but we have this idea of the crime that has been committed, if we know anything about it. We have this idea of darkness that we're bringing to this drawing. And couple that with just the way that things often just don't quite come together properly. I think they're, they're just so exquisitely unnerving. She liked to work at night. They spoke best to her then. There were a few bones from a hand. She had a facsimile head and facsimile eyes. And though that wasn't much, she considered it a luxury. A head start. A branch. A crumb. She wasn't there yet, but she would find him. She would find the way. She laid some clay over the forehead where the scalp would begin. The skull was found behind a long blue tank of a building off the highway, about a mile before the turnoff to the reservoir and the autumn farms. The building held a cob of commissary kitchens, and sometimes people worked there very late, even all the way through the night. And here, behind the building, meant just that the part facing away from the road, that great orienter on the other side. He was a baker, she decided. Sometimes she changed her mind about the words, the names, but she liked to start out with a story or start out without one and go forth making one, pulling things in like a bird. She decided he was a baker and he was at the kitchens during those late hours, before the rigs whirled by thundering flat green mile markers and rabbit holes, radios glowing like little pale hearts in the night, in the shoves of their wind. And after the moon reached the clouds and tucked in, he would show up tired, but as the ovens came on and he pushed the fine soft silt to flower around and over the cool brown boards, until his fingers left cryptic streaks and it felt like silk. Things would open up. His body came alive. So he was a baker, she thought, and he was in love. And maybe because of this, there was another man who hated him. And maybe he tried not to take this course, but wanted to see the baker suffer, see him die. Even if the baker did not win, he had changed her, and in some secret way, even if it was small, she would always think on it, take it with her, sit it down. This other man knew how it went. It had, in the past, happened to him. It had probably happened to most everyone. But that didn't make it better. That didn't make it clean. So while this woman was deciding, if there was anything left to decide, one night maybe the baker and the man 
walked out of the long blue building and into the fields for a long time. It was such a long time that they must have talked, or at least fell into an electric silence. And maybe it was the baker that stopped because he was tired of trying. And maybe this was unacceptable because this lowly baker had taken the wheel and made the story his own. So the man killed him there, in the grass, under the razor-white stars. And then, of course, whatever this man and this woman had fell apart anyway, as there was no way in the world it wouldn't. As dawn came, she left the studio, having built out his brow and jaw and nose. And when she crossed the frosty lot, Someone listing by on the street called out jubilant in the new orange sun. Hallelujah, they shouted. Bring out your dead. Gosh, I I searched for um, bad composite drawings or, you know, unsuccessful composites and the images that just came up on the first screen, oh, stuff of nightmares. I, they're, they're, they're uh, yeah. I don't even know how to describe them. It's, it's, it's. I, I can see that because I remember, uh, I remember seeing the police sketch of a very famous serial killer named Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, and it's strangeness in its weird depiction of his face it, it, it's probably the most chilling one i've actually ever seen uh, i don't think you could consider it good by any stretch and maybe that's that's what made it so eerie but the worse these are the, the stranger the directions they go in uh the more the more memorably chilling yeah i was you know just looking at one where it, it it's been joked about a lot as kind of the you know the worst um uh, uh sketch in 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 history for composite purposes uh, apparently it was just it was jotted by a victim and it was more it was very cartoonish looking but apparently uh this was a um a thief that um there was something about the attitude in in the and the energy in the drawing that w that turned out to be very helpful and actually jogged some people's memories. Um, you know, it, it, who's who's to say? Um, there's something about the presentation of them too, isn't there? Like, because you're you're firstly you're sort of hearing about things, you're hearing about what this person did, and then this image well you know because your your mind has already kind of been creating an image or perhaps you know these days you already know what the what this person looks like and then this 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 image comes at you and it's it's always shocking every time <laughs> no matter no matter how skilled the composite in the night a machine had broken in the building's kitchen. Their cafeteria filled with a weird hollow steam that clung to the inside of windows and dripped down in trails. The machine was removed, and its absence pushed out a stringy gray space around the tubular lights in the halls, a gaping, greasy space. 
The removal left a cavity with a naked feeling, like it shouldn't be seen. The space under and behind. The bare, discolored floor. It was the story of all machines. How is this looking? She turned the drawing pad toward her witness. The lights pinged like a bag of loose pins dropping. Were they always so loud? She felt them bounce off the thin skin of her eyes. Think about the light, she said, where you were. She grabbed a flatter pencil. Can you describe it for me? It makes a difference sometimes, on the face. I think, I don't know, let me think. He stared at the shapes on paper, the emerging portrait, blinking erratically. I don't know, I'm sorry. I have an idea, she said. Let's go outside. The courtyard was more crowded than usual due to the missing machine. There were still some lunches available for purchase, some sandwiches and fruit and packaged salad and hard eggs, and people had brought them outside, and so it was not really the tranquil place she had hoped for. He wouldn't open up here, she could tell. She could see it as soon as they sat down on a concrete bench. A picking wind pried under napkins and peeled cellophane from white fork and knife sets. Here, she said, let's move out front. They sat under the shade of a tree next to its careful circle of brown dirt. It was maybe a little better there, but in a way it was much worse. The whir of cars going by down the street with their disparate motors and mufflers and speeds. And it wasn't as far away from the sidewalk as she had thought. But it also seemed even worse and too much to suggest going back inside, so she didn't. If asked to, she might be ashamed to reveal that she was anxious for more progress on this image. Her thoughts were already on the evening ahead. She had a lot to do between the time she left work and the time she was supposed to meet somebody. She had to go home, stopping two places on the way there, decide on clothes, talk herself down, then up. And somewhere in all of that, eat something. By the time she was ready, she knew it would be dark. You said something about their voice, she said. Remind me what that was? His skin looked bruising and fish pale. The colors of his shirt didn't help. A murky olive green and charcoal stripe. His collarbone buoyed his neck. Let's both do this she said. Take a deep, round breath and look up. Good. Now close your eyes. Uh, They sounded, he began, like a cat or something. No, that's not what it was. There's something I didn't say before. He opened his eyes. It's too scary. I'm I'm afraid if I say it, it won't ever stop. Stop what? She asked. It was all wrong. The face didn't make any sense. What? She said. There are fields 
behind our house. It's there, at the edge of the yard, every night, until I die. I had a job once I worked in this warehouse. Oh, it was on the outskirts of this metropolitan area and um, in the same kind of lot, there was a, um, a little movie studio. And, it, you know, it was, it was small and very, uh, you know, they did mostly uh, kind of very terrible little cheesy independent horror films there. But it was really fun because sometimes you could see, you know, people just in, in varying stages of dress and costume uh, stepping out, you know, you know, to have a smoke, and I mean, it, it, you'd see all sorts of of fun things. And there, there was a there was a bar nearby where everyone in the area was kind of um, a, a very popular after work um, gathering location. I used to go in there after my shift, and I started to see there was a couple that would come in a lot. I first met them at a Halloween party. Uh, that the, the, the bar was throwing. And, you know, it was very dime store and very kind of um, last minute. But people really went all out, and it was adorable. These This couple came uh, from work. They both worked at the studio, and they had come fully in costume, and they had brought some, like, a big box of sort of random odds and ends from the studio in case anyone was 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 at the bar already and not in costume and they would like to be i remember they were beautifully dressed they were so they were they were dressed as the creature from the black lagoon and um julie adams you know like gilman and julie adams and they were totally done out like he you know he had the full-on costume and she had you know the white bathing suit it was really it was really great I, I noticed he was always doodling on napkins, but he, he had this one particular shape that it seemed that he kept drawing over and over. I would always see him draw you know, a variation of this of this one shape, like a something a protractor, you know, would uh, would draw. And it would be like a straight line or a wavy line and then kind of a dome. Or like half or partial circle that sort of sat above it, and it, he just was always drawing variations on this shape. She started to come in more uh, without him, and she started to confide to me that he, that they were having a hard time, and he, that he was becoming very strange. He was, he, he was fixated on the idea that the only way that you can get a truly terrifying creature um, or, you know, a reaction from a creature was, was, was in simple movements. And so he, he, was, he was a champion of practical effects, you know, versus um, the kind of ever emerging CG. He was, he was very passionate that even though it has great limitations, that the kind of the man in a suit, uh, format, you know, the old creatures was really the most effective because of the movement, because of the movement you could capture. It, it, it was, it was, you know, it was correct. It was human movement. It was, uh, terrifying. 
And he'd begun to obsess more and more about this. And he was, you know, disappearing for periods of time. Um, one day, he disappeared for, I think it was a couple of weeks. Um, and the, the story's a bit muddled, but what I understand is that he was found in the water in this kind of tiny quarry near the studio. And um, he was taken to the hospital. And <laughs> the detail is so strange. It turned out he had been found in his Creature from the Black Lagoon costume. Uh, and he had been... He had submerged himself in the water uh, for a prolonged period of time just up to his chin. So, you know, his head was just coming out. Uh, you know, and I, I immediately, oh, you know, I'm like, oh my God, that's the image that he kept drawing over and over. He was, he was envisioning this. He ended up dying at the hospital because he had been submerged in the water for such a prolonged amount of time that his skin had started to break down. It was overtaken by infection, basically. You know, I don't know if you can kind of off the top of your head picture um, the creature from the Black Lagoon. It, it's so, it's, it's, it's one of these images that is so kind of, there's something so weirdly, goofily wrong about the face and the head and the eyes, especially. It's almost like there are these giant sequin eyes. I, there's something so hair-raisingly, frighteningly, primally artificial <laughs> about it, if that makes any sense. I, I, I can't... They're, they're I, very, I remember they're very um, gaping, staring eyes. Yes. Moves, as I recall. I, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about with the creature from Black, Black Lagoon. I've not really ever been able to get that image of, of him passing days and nights there with these eyes, just, it's very upsetting to me, even, uh, even today. I feel like I remember a story that you told me. I want to say it was, it was something that happened to you in West Virginia. Does that ring a bell? Oh, the cold, oh, the cold, the mine collapse. My God, it makes perfect sense with what you're talking about. I, yeah, I, I just, I, again, years ago, I was, uh, I do not remember the name of the town. Uh, uh, an old coal town in West Virginia. It was the site of a mine collapse. I didn't even know that. I was just kind of hiking. Came across some ruins, and I came across a memorial, which was, uh, it was more of a grotto than anything else. Very simply done almost amateurishly done, memorial to the eight victims of a, of a mine shaft collapse, which I believe happened in like 1960, something like that. And in the grotto, as part of the memorial, there was a painting. It was obviously done by an amateur. It was a painting representing the faces of these eight victims. And it was encased, encased in glass to protect against the elements. 
and I looked at it for a while, and I, I thought, well, that, that's, that was a very nice gesture, even though it's, it's very clumsily done. But when I looked at it more, I realized there's something very wrong with it in that uh, the, the artist, in their lack of skill, had attempted to, to portray these people as smiling, but instead these smiles were sort of toothy grins with, with strange gaps between the teeth. And it had a, a very terrible effect, as if these people were were grinning at us from beyond the grave. But what, what made it so much worse was something I didn't realize then, only found out much later when I read about it, is that the eighth victim in the painting was the foreman that day. But a year after the mine shaft collapse, that foreman was implicated in some extremely serious um shady deals with the owner of the mine taking payments for corner cutting ignoring safety month after month and he eventually was blamed almost directly for himself and seven of his men trapped and killed in the mine so to this day i believe if you go to that little memorial in the woods you will see that painting and there he is with a strange grin on his face, counted as one of the eight tragic victims of the mine collapse at the time. Uh, the person who painted this did not know the context yet. It had yet to be discovered. But there he is, the foreman, right alongside the seven. And uh, now when I think of that painting, I think of how, how eerie that is, that he is included uh, in that amateur's painting with that toothy grin on his face. Developing and using composite images. Composite images can be beneficial investigative tools. However, they should not be used as standalone evidence and may not rise to the level of probable cause. The person preparing the composite shall Select and employ the technique in such a manner that the witness's description is reasonably depicted. The person preparing the composite should assess the ability of the witness to provide a description of the perpetrator, select the procedure to be used from those available, e.g. identikit type, artist, or computer-generated image, select an environment for conducting the procedure, that minimizes distraction. You say you want to hear this, but you don't. What I saw doesn't exist. I saw it, and I know that. The problem is that you don't. Even if it does exist, it shouldn't. See, I think the problem lies not in what happened. That seems to be a familiar thing. I left the house of my friend at night and I walked on the road between fields. I was on the road. I was walking then running. It's fall. There were scarecrows. There were little squashes like little dead heads half buried in the moon. It's perfect, right? No, I think it's a question of math, of sums ratios between the eyes and mouth and teeth. I know now that sometimes 
none of that means anything. It's like trying to open a new lock with an old key. Instructing the witness. The investigator or person conducting the procedure should instruct each witness without other persons present. Explain the type of composite technique to be used. Explain to the witness how the composite will be used in the investigation. Instruct the witness to think back to the event and their frame of mind at the time. So I should tell you that I think sketching is the best way to move forward, considering the nature of your story. Or, sorry, report, I should say, not story. I should also want to tell you, I mean I should tell you, sorry, is that no matter what you can tell us, even if it's barely anything at all, it will all be immensely helpful to the investigation. You're not on the hook to provide results. The process will continue either way. So let's start. Can you tell me anything about that night when it comes to you? Your heart, your temperature? How was your friend? What did you do? How did you come to love this friend above all other friends? Were you previously aware of the crop, or the tools, or the den, or the meat? Documenting the procedure. The person conducting the procedure shall Preserve the outcome by accurately documenting the type of procedures employed and the result. The person conducting the procedure should document the procedure employed, e.g. identikit type, mug book, artist, or computer-generated image in writing, including the witness's own words regarding how certain they are of any identification. Document items used. Preserve composites generated. Initially, I planned on employing identikit, but upon beginning conversation with the witness and the witness's idea of the event and of the person or persons involved on the evening in question and the nature of the detail retained, I understood that the features involved might be of a somewhat unprecedented nature, and that the use of pre-designed plug-in facial variations would not be sufficient in this case. The session began slowly, with some weariness and cryptic talk around directly referencing the night of the attack. What is clear to me now, and what became clear as the morning went on, is that the witness has an exceptionally assertive belief that what they experienced is not possible to describe. Or if it is possible, it is most certainly pointless. And that no prior plausible human description can be used to call it up. The witness wants to cut it off at the root, to stop it, to set back the course. And they almost believe that they can the drawing we made is, believe it or not, to the witness's described scale. I've not encountered these physical proportions in all my years of work with anyone else. 
and I don't suppose I shall again.'